Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we have Nir Ayal, a foremost leader in understanding behavior design, habit formation, and developing compelling technology, joining us for a truly fascinating and highly relatable discussion on the modern plague distraction. Distraction is such a massive part of our lives, including mine. Easily getting sucked into different things that we didn't intend to do. Having a plan for the day and having it be scuppered, whether it be by social media, by YouTube, by Google, by questions from others. Getting distracted is so destructive. You know that feeling. You had a plan for the day, and it went to pot. It went to pot because you got completely consumed and went down rabbit holes or just couldn't maintain focus for long enough to get things done that you value, that you expected to get done. You're not living up to your standards, your ideals. I know that feeling all too well. That's the reason I got near on the podcast because I know that me and so many others struggle with keeping our attention on the things that truly matter. Now, Nir is absolutely someone you want to listen to when it comes to this stuff. And you're going to hear more about why, his credentials, etc. in a second as we formally introduce him live on the podcast. But to give you a sense of what we talk about, here goes. We're going to talk about what is distraction and its connection to pain management. What are the main causes of distraction and are they all external? We get to deeply understand the human behavior and why we do anything. We talk about willpower and self-control and is that enough to deter distraction? We talk about being indistractable and how that's the skill of the century that we need to teach both ourselves and our kids. How to turn distractive behaviors into acceptable productive habits, as well as other things such as the badness of to-do lists, the power of time boxing and this is a biggie technology is it really the elephant in the room the bad actor that is causing us to be defenselessly addicted and distracted forevermore we get into that we dig into the science we dig into the evidence and Neil gives his unique perspective on technology We also talk about our kids and psychological nutrients, what they need to be human, to be happy, and how we're robbing them and malnourishing them of these psychological nutrients. We speak about the role of parents and how we need to help our kids be indistractable. And then we cover off a couple of things such as social antibodies, which is a really interesting concept, as well as how about getting distracted with positive things? Can we justify getting distracted if the thing we're getting distracted about is productive and positive, even if it's completely ruined our plan for the day? Well, that's my life, day in, day out. And I put myself under the spotlight for near to interrogate my behavior and really get to the root cause of why I allow my curiosity to get the best of me sometimes. Anyway, there's so much we cover. It is an absolutely fascinating discussion. I know you're going to love it. I know you're going to get a lot of value because I know it's relatable to everyone. And if this discussion has really struck a chord with you, please share it with others that you know need this information. Get Nir's book, Indistractable. 
go to his website, check some stuff out. And if you've got any questions of him or myself, you can get through to us at adaptnation.io or our Facebook or Instagram pages. Anyway, let's get on to what is a remarkable conversation with the one and only Nir Aol. What does it take to be truly fulfilled in life and achieve what you really want? You guys know I ask that question often of myself and of our guests. But for me, as I've been thinking through this, to achieve the things you really want in life, you need to you need to know what you want, right? You need to know how to go get it. You need to be able to manage the overwhelm of newness and all the work that's going to come ahead. You need to have an ability to take persistent action and push through pain, have a level of work efficiency, manage distraction, know when you're done, know when enough's enough, which is something I need to teach myself more often, and celebrate the successes. Sounds simple, right? But it isn't. See, the reality is many people are not getting done or achieving what they really want to. They are not consistently living their lives with their values. And why? Well, a big years, we're getting distracted, so distracted, constantly pulled off course. And how comes? Well, it's the technology, of course. It's those big, bad technology giants ruining our lives. Or is it? Well, to explore this fascinating discussion of achievement, fulfillment, and distraction, or versus distraction, we've got the brilliant Nir Ayot. Now, who is Nir? Nir is a long-term student of behavior design and habit formation, effectively learning how technology persuades people. He's an entrepreneur, having started and sold several companies. He's an author of two books, which are basically the, 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 the sides of the same coin. One called Hooked, which is about helping companies build habit-forming technology, and another called Indistractable, which is how to help you and I control those habit-forming technologies in our lives. And he's also the owner of a great website called nearandfar.com. Nir, I hope I got that about right. It's an absolute pleasure. I've heard you speak a couple of times, and I know we're going to be in for a right treat. Welcome to the show, Nir. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Um, hopefully, I've got that roughly right, but maybe you could, yeah. for us, Nir, you, maybe you could just elaborate a little bit on your past and maybe what makes you qualified and all things tech-forming habits and, most importantly, distraction. Well, your your introduction was uh, embarrassingly good. I really appreciate that. That was very very nice of you to say all those kind things. Uh, and and so yeah, just to fill in some of the blanks, uh, I taught at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford for many years, and then I taught at the Hazel Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. And uh, much of my my work was around how can we use technology to help people form good habits in their lives. And that was really the idea behind my first book, Hooked. It's been about five years now, uh, but but uh, if you remember. Back then, we were struggling with the fact that people were complaining about how technology was only uh, useful to geeks and nerds and how there was this digital divide of people who couldn't use technology because it was so difficult and it needed to be made more user-friendly. And so my idea was, what if we steal the secrets of Facebook and Google and uh, WhatsApp and Slack and all of these companies that design their products to be so engaging? What if we could use those same principles 
to make all sorts of products and services better, uh, more user friendly and help people form good habits in their lives. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, the book has sold about a quarter million copies and it's been used by pretty much every industry you can think of. Uh, companies like Fitbod that help people form uh, a habit of exercising in the gym. They get people hooked to exercise. Uh, companies like Kahoot uh, that I, I invested in, it's the world's largest educational software company. And they get kids hooked to in-classroom learning. Uh, even companies like the New York Times, one of my former clients, uh, I help them get people hooked to reading the newspaper every day. And so we can use these technologies to help people form good habits in their lives. And so that was kind of the, the jumping off point. The fact that I you know, have such a background in how to build habit forming technologies, I also understand the Achilles heel of how to make sure we can put these things in the right place. And you said it perfectly that it's two sides of the same coin, that in order to really understand how to get the best out of these technologies without letting them get the best of us, who better to tell you than an industry insider that can tell you what these technologies can and cannot do? Because I think there's a lot of uh, myths out there about the potential power of these technologies. Damn right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so why don't we start off with... Um so I've read your book, by the way, an absolutely fascinating book, Indistractable. I haven't Thank read the you. first, but I, I think I will get to that eventually. Um, you start by saying that there are two types of people. Mm -hmm. talk, talk more. Yeah, so there's there's a, there's this dichotomy, I think, these days uh, when people think about distraction. Uh, we have what we call the blamers and the shamers. The blamers, they say that the, the reason they get distracted is because of something outside of themselves. It's the iPhone, it's Facebook, it's something doing it to me, it's that chocolate cake that was too delicious, I just couldn't resist. Mm -hmm. They blame things outside themselves. Then we have what we call the shamers. The shamers say, and this is the category I used to fit into, well, maybe there's something wrong with me. I have uh, low self-control. I, I, I'm an imposter in my workplace. I'm, I'm lazy and we take it into ourselves. We shame ourselves. And of course, that makes the problem even worse, right? The worse you feel, the more likely you are to look for escape with a distraction. And so that's not a very healthy way to be. And I, so I propose that the, the healthier approach is to be what we call not a blamer, not a shamer, but a claimer. A claimer claims responsibility for their actions, realizing that you cannot control how you feel per se. You can only control how you respond to your feelings. And so this stuff isn't your fault, right? You didn't invent email. You didn't invent the iPhone. You didn't invent Facebook. These things aren't your fault, but they are your responsibility because they're not going away. And we need these tools for our livelihood. So my, my approach is to claim responsibility for our actions by understanding why is it that we get distracted and taking steps to make sure that we control these, these tools as opposed to letting them control us. And it turns out it's, it's actually much easier than most people think. Uh, you know, most people like to complain about this problem because, of course, blaming and shamer, shaming is much easier to do than claiming. But uh, when we really take a step back, some some simple techniques, some methods that we can utilize in our life, and that's the, the 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 strategy as well as the tactics that I describe in Indistractable, are actually not so tough to do and are are really life changing. And it's not just about technology, right? We we like to think that technology has somehow created distraction, and I would argue that that is very much not the case. That 
Plato talked about this problem 2,500 years ago. 2,500 years before the iPhone, Plato complained about how distracting the world was back then. And people have always complained about how distracting the world is. And so it's really about getting to the root cause of all distraction. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, you know, if, if Mark Zuckerberg decides to shut down Facebook tomorrow, do we really think that people will start reading Shakespeare and Chaucer in their spare time? Of course not. <laughs> we'll find other things to distract ourselves, as we always have. So you, you talk about the the need to manage the distraction and how that is a life skill that better be developed um, because you've got the distracted versus the indistractable. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the problems or the issues that arise if you haven't got some control mechanisms, some techniques around distraction. Where can it lead you? And what, what is distraction? Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a terrific place to start to really define what this term means. So when we think about distraction, I think the best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what it is not. Uh, so if you ask most people, what is the opposite of distraction? Most people will tell you it's focus, but I disagree. I don't think the opposite of distraction is focus. I think the opposite of distraction is traction. That in fact, if you look at the entomology of the words, they both come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things that you do with intent. Now, the opposite of traction is distraction, anything that pulls you away from what you plan to do, things that you do not do with intent. Now, why is this dichotomy important? I think it's important for two reasons. Number one, I think anything can be a distraction, right? So let's say this used to happen to me every single day. I would come to, you know, I'd sit down at my desk. I'd say, okay, now I'm going to work on that big project. I'm finally going to do that thing that I was procrastinating on. Now I'm finally going to get to work. Here I go. But let me check email first, (laughs) right? And I would let, this, this is what's so pernicious about distraction. Distraction tricks you into thinking what you are doing is what you really want to be doing when in fact, you later regret the fact that you didn't do what you originally planned. Mm -hmm. So email feels productive. It feels worky. It feels like something I have to do anyway. But if it's not what I plan to do with my time, if I plan to work on that big project, finish that report, do the thing that I was going to do, well, then that distraction of email was just as pernicious as playing video games. I would say even more so because if you're, you know, if you're on YouTube or playing a video game, at least you know you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. But when you check email as opposed to doing the big project you you told yourself you were going to do, and now you're procrastinating by doing something work-related, well, distraction has tricked you into prioritizing the urgent at the expense of the important. Mm -hmm. And that's really dangerous. So that's point number one. Anything can be a distraction. And I think conversely, anything can be traction. That I don't subscribe to this ridiculous notion that You know, what you do with your time, that's frivolous. That's a waste. You know, you on social media, you playing a video game, that's a waste of time. But me watching football, oh, that's okay. What's the difference? There's no difference. (laughs) Anything you plan to do with that that's according to your values and on your schedule is perfectly fine and we shouldn't feel guilty about it the problem is that we do these things without intent we do these things on someone else's schedule we respond to every ping and ding uh, because someone else wants us to respond to it as opposed to planning ahead and deciding what we want to do with our time and i would argue you can turn these otherwise distractions like going on social media like watching youtube videos whatever it might be into traction 
by planning ahead, by planning for these things in your day? Mm, so it's <laughs> just to hearing you talk about email, for example, um, that relates to me just so perfectly. You know, I've spent 15 or so years in corporate IT, in the corporate world, and email was such a central part of everyone's work life. And it was so easy to say, I've done five, six, seven hours worth of work today, all of which has been responding to other people's needs via email. And you can't really say that email is, you know, you can abandon it because you can't. People are expecting you to be present. Um, right. That being said, you, you, you might have gone to bed the night before and anticipated you were going to get certain things done and you didn't. And that gets me all the time there. I feel that I get things done, but knowing near as much as the things that I had hoped to or had planned to. And therefore, if I'm being honest, uh, I think I'm tricking myself and I'm getting distracted more often than not. That right. is a really interesting way to frame it. You you speak about distraction being um, avoidance of pain or to right. do with um, avoiding boredom. Maybe you can talk about yeah. that a little bit because I thought that was fascinating in your book. Sure, yeah, yeah. So we have this, you know, you should see in your mind right now, this is the, the mental picture I want to paint for you is a, a, a timeline, right, a number line. And to the right, you have traction. To the left, you have distraction. Now, as I said, you know, both words end in the same six letters. They end in A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So put action in the middle between those two lines, okay? So these distractions or acts of traction are things you do. They are not things that happen to you. They are things you do in response to two things. We have what's called the external triggers, and then we have what's called the internal triggers. Now, external triggers you'll be very familiar with. These are the things in our environment that prompt us to action with some type of stimulus. So it's a ping, a ding, a ring, something in our environment that pulls us towards either traction or distraction. If it's something we plan to do, if it's an alarm on your phone that says, hey, now it's time for that meeting, now it's time to go work out, uh, whatever it might be, and that's what you plan to do with your time, wonderful, it's moving you towards traction. But if it's not something you plan to do, if you're in the middle of one thing and now you've been, uh, you know, you, you, you hear some ping or ding on your phone or even an office colleague tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, you know, let me tell you about this bit of office gossip or can I just talk to you for 10 minutes, that might lead you off track, leading you towards distraction. So those are the external triggers, and that's what most people blame as the source of distraction. They blame the things outside themselves. And although those can, those things can lead us to either traction or distraction, it turns out that the root cause of the problem, that most distraction does not start from outside of us, but rather most distraction starts from within. That if you look at what is the most common cause of distraction, it's not the pings and dings, it's the feelings right? It's what we are experiencing, this uncomfortable emotional states that we call internal triggers that prompt us to seek relief from that discomfort. Now, we have to back up a second. We, we, we talked about how distraction is nothing new and how Plato talked about this problem 2,500 years ago. So if we are to answer Plato's question of why do we do things against our better interest? And I, I, it's interesting that Plato said that way back then. And I think today it's even more mystifying because you know, you used to be able to claim, well, I don't know what to do. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm lacking information. Well, today, who doesn't have Google, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't know how to do something, 
you can find out. And and let's let's be honest. We all know basically what to do. If you want to lose weight, if you want to live healthier, you know what to do. If you want to have better relationships, you have to be fully present with people. If you want to have a, a, excel at your job, you have to do the work, especially the hard stuff that other people don't want to do. So we all basically know what to do. There is no more knowledge gap. What there is is this, this terrible plague of distraction. We don't know how to stop doing the things we know we shouldn't be doing. So if we are going to answer Plato's question of why don't we do what is in our best interest, why do we sabotage ourselves and get distracted, we have to ask a more fundamental question, which is why do we do anything and everything? What mm. is the seat of human motivation? Now, most people will tell you that motivation is all about carrots and sticks, right? We've all heard this before. It's about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. This is called Freud's pleasure principle. Unfortunately, it ain't true. <laughs> that neurologically, that is not what is going on. That in fact, the brain has two systems, two wiring systems. One is called the liking system. One is called the wanting system, two distinct systems. The liking system, the job of the liking system is to encode memories of pleasurable sensations. And the wanting system, what actually drives us to act is this wanting system that spurs us, not with pleasure, but only pain. That in fact, all human behavior, everything you do is about a desire to escape discomfort, even the pursuit of pleasurable sensations, wanting, craving, desire, lusting. There's a reason we say love hurts because psychologically that is exactly what's going on, right? That it's even des the desire for something pleasurable is psychologically destabilizing. So physiologically, this will make a lot more sense if we think about it physiologically with our bodies. If you feel cold, you go outside and it's cold, well, that's uncomfortable. And so what does your brain tell you to do? It tells you to put on a coat. And if you go back inside, now you're too warm. Your brain says, this is not cut. This doesn't feel good. This is uncomfortable. Take off your coat. And if you get hungry, you feel hunger pangs. And when you're, you eat too much, uh, that doesn't feel good. You stop eating. And so this is what happens in the body. This is called the homeostatic response. The same exact holds, thing holds true for our psychological sensations. So when we are feeling lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check the news, we look at sports scores, Pinterest, Reddit, you name it. All of these products and services cater to these uncomfortable emotional triggers, these uncomfortable feelings that we seek to escape. Now, why is this so important? Because if we acknowledge that all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, what that means, therefore, is that time management is pain management. That if we don't understand what it is we are trying to escape from, what uncomfortable sensation is spurring us to acts of distraction as opposed to acts of traction, we will never get to the root cause of the problem. If you can't help but check your cell phone when you're with your family, if you keep getting distracted at your desk at work, if you find that day after day you keep getting distracted by stuff you know you shouldn't be doing, the root cause of the problem is these internal triggers and our inability to cope with those internal triggers in a healthier manner. So you're saying to me when I'm doing my podcast edit and I'm listening back on these podcasts and they can take a really long time and I don't particularly enjoy it. <laughs> and I'm 10 minutes through, five minutes through even. And I've said to myself, I'm just going to stay focused. And then within a few minutes, and I've made this pact myself, I'm not going to touch my phone. Within a few minutes, uncontrollably, uncontrollably, the phone's in my hand and I've swiped up to just check something out. Why? 
I can't fully tell you. I feel I've got a really strong sense of control for the most part. But when it comes to scratching that itch, it just seems Mm -hmm. to happen. Yeah. Am am I I avoiding pain at that point? That's right. That's right. And it's interesting that you should mention that, you know, I have good self-control and willpower. Uh, (laughs) Not good enough. (laughs) None of us do. In fact, even the concept of willpower, the very concept is being challenged in the psychology community. And we're we're starting to think that it's a myth, the whole idea of willpower. Uh, Willpower and self-control and self-discipline doesn't work. What works is a methodology. What works is a system in place to know when you are about to get distracted, what do you do? Because what we're doing is we're breaking the impulsive response to self-soothe with a distraction. What you are doing is you are trying to escape discomfort. By the way, I'm talking to you, but let me tell you, this was my problem. (laughs) I wrote this book for me. I was right where you are. I was sabotaging myself every day. I was a damn liar to myself day after day. I would say I would work out, but I wouldn't. I would say I was going to stay focused, but I wouldn't. I would say I was going to be fully present with people I loved, and I wasn't. And it drove me crazy because I don't want to be a liar, right? I wouldn't lie to my friends. I wouldn't lie to my family. I don't want to lie to anybody. So why was I lying to myself day after day? And so I, I totally feel where you are. And it, it was it was so interesting. It was such a, such a complex problem and such an amazing superpower. What a skill it could be. To, to to follow through, to live with personal integrity, to do what you say you're going to do, no matter what that thing is, to follow through is, is I think, the skill of the century. You know, to be the kind of person who lives with personal integrity, who people can depend on, that's the kind of person people want to do business with. That's the kind of person that people fall in love with. That that's That's what it takes to be a good parent, a good spouse. And that's what it takes to be the kind of person you yourself want to be. So – when I when I diagnose or I, I provide advice, I don't want you to think that that we're not in the same boat because we absolutely are. I wrote the book for me more than anyone. So I mean, let's let's put uh, an example on the table. And again, this isn't a uh, this isn't Steve on the couch, but no, I love you, it. Let's usually, it. <laughs> usually, it kind of makes sense when uh, you know I put myself out there. So yeah. I you know I've got a hard and fast rule, <laughs> which which gets broken. Um, I have a hard and fast rule that I have you know notifications turn off on my phone i am um, put a um do not disturb or a kind of time schedule of availability of certain apps on my phone so i have to do work to you know get through that control and i've said to myself don't you know don't don't look at you know whether it be facebook whether it be you know my instagram business insights whether I look at the podcast in podcast insights if i'm purely doing like business analytics even still i won't look at that before nine o'clock and i'll I have, I have a schedule, a routine in the morning I want to follow. And I'd say quite often I follow it. But I can wake up in the morning and say, I'm just not going to touch my phone. I'm, you know, I know what I'm going to do. It's going to look like this. And then somehow, and it's like some alien has come down and possessed me, even though I've said to myself, I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. I've flicked through the, do you want to, are you sure you want to look at this app? And I've gone, yes. And I've gone through into Facebook and I've clicked on the notifications to see what's happened. And I'll do it now. It might only be a minute. It's not like I I can get drawn down a rabbit hole, but it happens. Now, Mm -hmm. two questions. One, is that truly damaging to have that, you know, lack of self-control and consume a couple of minutes worth of something you said you you wasn't going to, i.e. breaking one of your rules? And two, why is that happening when I've put all these controls in place for it not to happen? Yeah. So I would argue that there's uh, th- there, there's a few different points of evidence that show that it actually is harmful. 
Uh, one, let me let me tell you a quick anecdote through uh, around what's happening in the states. I don't have this. I don't have the stats for what's happening in the UK, but in the United States, the some studies have shown that the third leading cause of death. Well, let, let me ask you. If I were to ask you, what's the third leading cause of death in the United States? I'll give you the first two. Number one is heart disease. Number two is cancer. The third leading cause of death. What would you think? Most people would think uh, it's Alzheimer's or stroke or accidents. Yeah, I would, I, would, I would have probably put accidents. Yeah, yeah, not even close. The third leading cause of death, if it was a disease, would be prescription mistakes. Healthcare practitioners giving people in hospitals the wrong medication or the wrong dosage of medication. 200,000 Americans are harmed every single year from this problem. It's a huge problem. Until a group of nurses at UCSF decided to tackle this problem and to try and figure out what was going on. Why were these nurses making so many medication mistakes? And it turns out the culprit was distraction. That these nurses, while they were dosing out medication, were constantly interrupted or interrupting themselves by a colleague coming up to them, a doctor, somebody was interrupting them and they were making mistakes. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because the tragedy here is that the nurses didn't even realize they were making the mistakes until it was too late. So to them, they thought they were doing a great job and they didn't register that the mistakes were happening until it led to some pretty tragic consequences. Now that's what happens to us every day. We think, hey, what's the problem? I'm doing a great job, you know? So I get distracted from time to time, what's the big deal? And we don't even realize how much better our work output, how much our life would be if we stayed focused, if we worked in an indistractable manner. And so that's that's the real thing. We we are succeeding despite the fact that that we are getting distracted. We could be so much better at our jobs and in, in, in our life and our personal life as well if we did what we decided we were going to do without distraction. So that's point number one. Point number two. What happens when we constantly get distracted? When we constantly lose control and do something we didn't want to do? We are reinforcing a pattern, and particularly we are reinforcing a self identity. We, every time you slip up and do something you didn't want to do and go off track towards distraction rather than staying with the act of traction, you are reinforcing an identity that, oh, I have poor self-control. I'm, I'm not very good at this. Uh, I'm an imposter. I, you, you're reinforcing this identity that is not serving you. Instead, what you want to do is reinforce an, a, an identity of agency. We know that people who have an internal locus of control as opposed to an external locus of control, people who think that they can affect their circumstances end up being much more successful, much happier in their day-to-day -day lives because they believe in themselves. And so that's why these behaviors are so pernicious. It's that you're reinforcing a self-image that is not serving you, that, that you can't control yourself. So that's, that's a big reason why we want to tackle this problem. That makes sense. It does. Um, you know, I've, I've often thought about this near because um yeah I'd, I'd like to think i can nip this in the bud one, once and for all and and yet i can't and part of me then starts to justify <laughs> and go yeah. actually do you know what it's i'm seeking some good news first thing in the morning and i don't always get yeah. it but i'm seeking some good news you know a nice uptick in you know the podcast listens or you know some activity right. on facebook that kind of demonstrates the work yesterday and into the evening was worth it something that my yeah, just give me a boost in the morning and then I get on with the rest of my day. Well, that's the intent. Well, at least that's the subconscious, perhaps the, the reason why I, I do what I say I'm not going to do. Sometimes it is a blip that 
disappears within just a couple of minutes. I get back on with the schedule of, of what I wanted. Other times it can absolutely distract me uh, mm-hmm. for tens of minutes. Now, I'm, I'm just trying to understand and pick at that scab a bit because I don't feel it being totally destructive. Um, in some cases, I find it's given me a bit of a kind of feel-good boost in the morning if it's good news, but it isn't mm-hmm. always good news. <laughs> Have you got anything to say to that? Like, Yeah. So, so let me be very clear. I'm not against you checking these stats in the morning. I'm not against you playing a video game first thing in the morning. I'm not against you doing anything that you want to do. As long as I'm against do you doing something you don't want mm. to do. <laughs> That's the big difference. So if you say, I, I think it's very important that I spend uh, 30 minutes looking at my stats for my podcast, go for it. If you want to spend time watching YouTube videos or connecting on Facebook, whatever it is that you want to do with your time, I want you to do that. But I want you to do it for the right reasons. I don't want you to do it because you're avoiding having to do real work. Or because you need, uh, you're feeling lonely or uncertain or fatigued or something else that you are turning to a distraction from what you really want to do with that time. So if you schedule that time for what you want to do, then you're turning a distraction into traction. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's when you decided to do one thing and you're doing this instead. That's the the real problem. That's what I'm trying to to help people change and that's what I've changed in my own life. Yeah, and and it does it does absolutely absolutely take something away when you you had a schedule of the day and it goes to pot because you've just got a lack of self-control or you're not following through or you're getting distracted. I I totally agree. Thank thanks for yeah. exploring that a little bit more with me, Nick. Sure. Yeah. And and by the way, what we're doing here in that first step of mastering the internal trick. So, you know, it's interesting because you've mentioned a few things that are actually very productive. They're actually very good. For example, you schedule the time. That's great. That's actually the second step uh, to becoming indistractable is to make time in your day. I think what's important here is that people realize there is no magic bullet. There is magic buckshot, <laughs> right? You can't, it's not just one solution. What I've discovered in the past five years writing this book is that there are four important steps and you need all four. And when you do all four, I, I'm, I'm telling you, you will become indistractable. This is this is it. I mean, this is why I spent five years and there's you know over 20 pages of citations for peer-reviewed uh, studies in the book. It's not just my personal formula. This is backed by you know real evidence, real scientific studies out there to the best of, we, of what we know. These techniques, some of them are 30, 40, 50 years old techniques uh, that when we use them together, we solve the problem. So for example, in your case, You've done the right thing in terms of scheduling the day. You would be amazed. You know, I, I talked to hundreds of people in interviews uh, for this book over the past five years, and one common trait among everybody I talked to who found that they were distracted, that they couldn't get done what they wanted to do uh, in a day, is that every single one of them didn't time box their day. None of them did this. They would complain about how uh, you know the, the, their kids want this and their boss wants this, and did you see what happened in the news and Twitter with this? I can't get anything done. But then when I asked them, well, what did you get distracted from exactly? They would say, well, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't have anything planned. Well, here's the thing. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Not just to say, okay, here's a meeting here, an appointment there, but for your entire day, 
using this time box calendar, using a time box technique. By the way, this is in thousands of studies have, sh have shown. This is called making an implementation intention, which is just a fancy way of saying planning what you're going to do and when you're going to do it by having that time box calendar and then syncing it with the stakeholders in your life. And we can talk more about that in a minute. That that's the that's a very important step. It's a second step. But I would argue if you jump to that step without doing the first step of having tools in your toolkit to master the internal trigger. So this is what you were what you were experiencing. You wrote down on your calendar, I want to do this and this at this particular time of day, and yet you didn't. And I would argue that's probably because you haven't done step one, which is to learn techniques to master the internal triggers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, for, for the guys who listen and who go through to adaptation.i and check out what I write about, something I wrote about last year was my morning routine, which I'd say, for the most part, is still consistent. And I pride myself on managing a ritual. Um, and the second thing I wrote was, you know, my my perfect day, my perfect week, I, I spent the time after just being just getting to my wits end of being a self employed, you know, transitioning from corporate IT to doing my own thing, and finding it almost impossible to get stuff mm. done at the level of mm. pace and expectation I had of myself. So I kind of pulled pulled back and I basically wrote out what a perfect day looks like in the context of a perfect week. And I time boxed it from the moment I w woke up to the time I'm going to be in bed and tried to work out how I'm going to petition time for the things that I care about. So I've done that. It looks beautiful. And I'd say it is my guiding star for mm. what a great week is. It doesn't mean I always do it, though. And I've got mm -hmm. a, a few reasons why I don't always stick to my plan. We can talk about that. But I, I understand. And I, I think you're, you're this idea of time boxing is incredibly powerful because when you decide, one, things are important, and two, you need to make time for them, otherwise they don't get done. Just having a massive laundry list of things that are important to you, but not scheduling them. I mean, I see my wife do it. My wife gets so much done. A lot of operational stuff, a lot of low-level stuff, but the big chunky mm. stuff, very yeah. difficult for her to address because she yes. doesn't schedule them. She just has Amen. them on this huge list of things to do. And, and we should take a pause here for a second because I think this is such a prevalent problem. This is why I'm not a fan of the way most people use to-do lists. I don't like to-do lists, even though you know I think many people in the productivity community, uh, they espouse to-do lists as this messiah that if you just make a to-do list, magically it gets done, right? And of course that's not true because if you don't plan when you're going to do those things, I think it leaves you worse off. Here's why, this is what would happen in my life. So I would subscribe to this myth of the to-do list and I'd write down all the things I need to do and I'd have a very productive day. I'd get done, you know, out of my list of 100 things to do, I would get done 10, 15 things, right? Super productive day. And then at the end of the day, when what I really wanna do is to spend time with my daughter, maybe watch a television show, just relax, I'd look at this list of still 90 things that I haven't done. And so every day I never felt this feeling of freedom to enjoy myself and relax. Even more so because I would say, oh, I've got more to do, I've got more to do. Sometimes I would say, ah, just screw it, right? And in the middle of the day I would say, well, I'm never gonna accomplish everything, so what the hell? And in fact, there's, there's a specific name for this. This is called the what the hell effect. Uh, this is actually a real biases in, in the psychology literature. It's when, you know, you're on a diet and you have one piece of chocolate cake and you say, what the hell, my diet's ruined for the day. I'll start again tomorrow. And we see this happening with, with, when it comes to personal productivity too. Sometimes when we have so many things to do on that to-do list 
that we know we'll never accomplish, we don't even start. We say, ah, whatever, I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> and we let ourselves it's get just distracted. It's too overwhelming, with, isn't with, it? Exactly. We let everything all at once. Over. Exactly. As opposed to when you make a time box calendar, now the goal is no longer to finish anything. What do I mean? The goal is not to finish task A, finish task B. The goal is to work for that time block without distraction, and that's it. Because the fact of the matter is humans are awful at planning their time. Study after study has shown that we are terrible predictors of how long a task will take us to complete. Mm -hmm. What we can do, however, as opposed to feeling like a loser day after day, not completing what we said we would do, by time boxing, you feel like a winner every hour because your only goal for that time period is to work without distraction for the number of minutes that you said you would, whether that's that. 30 minutes, an hour, it doesn't matter. And of course, if you do that consistently, if you just plan the output, I'm sorry, if you just plan the input of time, the output will follow. But most people don't even do that, right? They either procrastinate till the very last minute <laughs> or they, they, they don't do a very good job of estimating how long things will take and now they're running around like crazy feeling busy without actually getting uh, the, the task done. Whereas the people who turns out ironically who just plan the input, they are the ones who enjoy the fruits of the output. Yeah, I, I, I totally, I totally agree. That is such a, such beautifully put there now. Um, Thank you. What, what I was thinking of going into now before we you know, maybe dig a little bit deeper into some of these techniques. Uh, and I wrote a bunch of things that I really liked from your book, as well as perhaps talking about this idea of psychological nutrients. I'd love mm. for us to talk about that. There's one other thing I'd like us to hit, the, the elephant in the room, the big bad wolf, which is mm. social media, mobile technology and internet. So we've been speaking about that, of course, um, but we've not addressed the overwhelming alarmist. And if I'm honest, I have been in this camp saying these things that mm. technology, as as great as it is and as empowering as technology is today, it is our Achilles heel and it is causing lots of issues. Now, I think I've used the word wrong words here and I'd love for you to address that. So is technology the big bad wolf? Is it rotting our brains? Is it ultimately addictive? And is it ruining our kids' future and their mental health? Yeah, so so let me answer with the universal answer to all complex questions, which nobody likes this answer. But the answer is, of course, it depends. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that, you know, in the media, you'll never see a headline that says technology. It depends. <laughs> but of course, that, you know, that, that's not how the media writes headlines. The media wants headlines that say, uh, amazing new technology will save the world or amazing new technology is going to destroy the world. That's how the media likes to, to, to write the headlines because ironically enough, they are in the same business as the social media networks. How do they, how does, how does the, the guardian or the times or whoever else make money? They sell your attention. Well, how do you think Facebook makes money? They also sell your attention. And, and so you know, it's ironic that the pot is calling the kettle black here because the, the traditional media is in the very same business. And I think you know, when we look at time studies of where people waste time, they waste just as much, if not more time, reading frivolous news that has no impact on their life, that they're using the news as an escape from their lives or from these internal triggers we talked about earlier, just as much as they do social media. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. They can both be potential distractions, and I think they can also be acts of traction if we use them appropriately in our life. I think what's not helpful 
is that the conversation has has shifted, I think, from skepticism, which I think is a very healthy trait. And, and I agree that there are lots of things about new technologies like social media that can have deleterious consequences. When you think about uh, the election interference, when you think about data incursions, when you think about their monopoly status, lots of things that I think these companies should held, be held to account for. But I think that skepticism has now turned into cynicism, where these companies can do nothing right. And in fact, we're starting to see the pendulum shift, I think, too far, where we're starting to blame them on everything wrong in society. And I don't think that's helpful. And one of the narratives that I think I, I'm, I'm really trying to fight against is this idea that it is addicting everyone, that it's hijacking your brain, uh, that these algorithms are controlling your mind. And I think that is not only is that not true, scientifically is not true. I mean, think, think about it from common sense perspective, this idea that it's addicting everyone. you know. Many things are addictive and don't addict everyone. And this is a contradiction in people's minds. People don't understand how can social media be addictive and why is it wrong then to say that it's addicting everyone? Because lots of things in society are addictive but don't addict everyone. Does everyone who has a beer with dinner, is everyone who drinks an alcoholic? Of course not. Is everyone who has sex a sex addict? Is everyone who plays a, a, a game of poker once in a while, or is, are they all problem gamblers? Of course not. Addiction is a pathology. And it's disrespectful, I think, to use this terminology to describe, you know, in the mainstream, everything that people like a lot. We, we don't use that, uh, this kind of terminology with other diseases. We don't use it with Alzheimer's or high blood pressure. And yet we throw around this term that we're all addicted when it is a pathology. It is a disease that a certain subset of the population has. Certainly some people do become addicted to technology because some people get addicted to all sorts of things. Any analgesic, anything that solves pain is potentially addictive to someone. And, and addiction is much more complicated than just the product. There's a confluence of factors when it comes to uh, what causes addiction. Now, I think the, the first reason this is troublesome, I think it, it, it's disrespectful to people who actually suffer from the disorder, from the pathology of addiction. But, but also, that type of terminology or believing this type of myth that it's addicting everyone leads to learned helplessness. That when we believe, well, there's nothing I can do about this because the algorithms are addicting me and my kids are crazy because they're using, you know, they're, they're playing video games all day. You know what happens? We don't even try and fix the problem. And so ironically, it becomes true. And I think that's what's so pernicious about this belief system and, and why I'm so passionate about, about the work I do and, and, and getting this book out there is because it's a very disempowering message to tell people that they're powerless to resist. It doesn't mm -hmm. serve us. And it's not true. Scientifically, it's not true. Of course we can put this stuff in its place. Come on. We're not freebasing Facebook. We're not injecting Instagram here. There's so much we can do. And so that's why I'm really fighting against this notion that we're all somehow powerless to resist. I want people to realize that they are way more powerful than they know. But these technologies, Nir, they're not, they're not happening by mistake, right? And you've written a book about it. And I know there'll be scientists and engineers um, focused primarily on user experience, forming habits, driving behaviors, and encouraging you to use their technology as often as possible during the day, right? So we're on one side, um, whilst I'm sure, you know, we're not talking about evil empires here, but their motivation is to have you use their product often and frequently. So you've got the smartest people in the world with technology uh, driven to, you know, 
tap into my internal triggers. Yeah. <laughs> and, but, and, but, and at the same time, you're saying, uh, you know, it, we, we have self-control, we have free will. I get it. I understand that. Um, but we are fighting against quite novel um, stimulus here, right? Something that has been very deliberate, deliberate in trying to grab our attention, perhaps right. more than anything else in our history. But is that true? Or do you think everything has been equally as demanding of our time through time? So, so you're you're using the incentive argument, which is that if someone has an incentive to get you to do something, that therefore it is effective at getting you to do it. That's essentially the argument you're making. You're saying, well, don't these companies have an incentive to make more money on us by getting us to use their products more? And you're absolutely right. They do have that incentive. Just as you have an incentive to get more people to listen to your podcast and The Guardian has an incentive to get people to read their newspaper and you know, lots of people have incentives, but that does not logically mean that we are all duped into doing what these companies want us to do. Clearly, if Facebook, just because they had in this incentive, were so good at mind control, why are we not using Facebook all day, every day, <laughs> right? Why, why do we find that people are actually, especially in the UK, the statistics I've just seen are that the, the, the Facebook usage in the UK is down 30%. Wow. Well, how addictive is it actually? How well is this mind control occurring if many of us say, you know what, this isn't serving us? I mean, I, I just wrote this 250 page book to tell you how to stick it to Facebook. I, 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 hear, I hear you near, but at, at the same time, they have, they've got so much money and so much resource at solving many problems. But one of the problems, and I'm sure they devote lots of time, energy, attention and dollars towards is continuing to drive the behaviors of usage. So it's not like, for example, you know, my desire to get people listening to uh, this show, my resources are limited, both in manpower, uh, capability, resources, all that kind of stuff. Mm. It is not limited in Google, in Amazon, in Facebook. But, but you're still using the incentives argument. I, absolutely, I am. But they've got a lot of resources to, to, towards this, uh, this need of theirs. And I, I'm, I'm not still, trying to make this them the, against us, it, but they are, no, it's, they've got it's the, still the more power. I, I, I invite you to tell me what they are doing that is so persuasive, right? Without using the incentives argument, right? What are they doing? that makes us powerless, that makes us addicted, that makes us all unable to do something about the problem. I don't think they are doing anything that ultimately is controlling me as an individual, but they are driving a lot of uh, triggers. You know, they are designing those triggers in the most perfect way possible to, yeah. to play, and, to and play at argue, my weakness. Thank goodness they are. Do we want it any differently? Hey, uh, Apple, I really like using my iPhone. Can you please make it less user-friendly? I want to use it a lot. <laughs> hey, Netflix, your shows are really entertaining. Can you please make them more boring? I want to watch your shows a lot. This is ridiculous. Yeah, I know. We want these products to be better because that's progress. That's not a problem. That's progress. So I don't want to go back to a world without these devices, without these, these services. They're wonderful. You know how many friends I would not keep in touch with were it not for Instagram? That's a wonderful service. So we can get the best out of these tools without letting them get the best of us. I would argue, despite their incentive, and I'm telling you as an industry insider, I know every psychological trick they use. And I can tell you, they're good. They're not that good. We're not puppets on a string. People are not idiots. If a product doesn't serve you, I mean, look what's happening right now. Facebook is a dumpster fire. It sucks. And so what are people doing? They're abandoning it. 
they're not using it as much. They're learning that the information I even hear uh, from my students that, you know, when I, I used to teach at Stanford until recently, and I would hear my students telling each other, like, if, if you hear a piece of information, that's a piece of gossip, that's garbage, and you want to question its legitimacy, you know what you say? You don't say, oh, that's bullshit. You say, where'd you hear that, Twitter? Hmm. People are learning. They are adapting. Yeah. Our species, we don't give enough credit to people. We are an amazing species. And what we have done during every technological revolution is we adapt our behaviors and we adopt new technology to fix the last generation of technology. For example, I invested in a company called Marco Polo a few years ago, which is a wonderful social network that has all the benefits of connecting with friends without a lot of the bad stuff that's associated with a product like Facebook. So I think the idea here is if you don't like Facebook, if you don't like a particular technology, one, you can stop using it. <laughs> and if you say, well, I can't, that's impossible. Well, you know what you can do? You can hack back. How about something as simple as something that two thirds of people with a smartphone never do, change your notification settings. Zuckerberg can't turn your notification settings back on. And can we really say the technology is so addictive and is controlling our brains when two thirds of people with a smartphone haven't taken five minutes to change their notification settings? It's ridiculous. There's so much we can do. And so this message that keeps getting repeated, it's just too convenient. It's too easy of an argument. And I think, you know, somebody asked me in an interview, what keeps you up at night? And I told them that what keeps me up at night is simple answers to complex questions. That, you know, whenever we as a species do this, whether it's all my problems are because of that political party, all my problems are because of that racial group, all my problems are because of that we're creating simple answers to complex problems. And in fact, it doesn't serve us. It never serves us when we do that because we're jumping to a conclusion. We're, we're, we're and, and in, in a sense, giving in, ironically, to what these companies want because when we say we're powerless, of course, it becomes so. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a really compelling argument. Neil. It, make, it makes sense that the control ultimately is with me and there's much I can do to uh, not be exposed to, you know, the wonderful algorithm that is Instagram or Facebook if I choose to. Um, but as you say, we're not necessarily making the choice and we're, we're, um, we're passing on that responsibility to others or we're, we're saying we're powerless. And I, I think that's a really powerful point. Talk to me about mental health then. So I, I would say that um, it may or may not be true, um, but there are stats to suggest that we are, you know, we have more and more opportunity now than ever before. Um, but mental health is becoming a focus, um, is becoming a problem that people are um, malnourished uh, with what what is necessary for them to be fulfilled. Now, mm. part of that narrative is that it's, um, it's the kids checking their Instagram and their Snapchat and their Facebook throughout the night, having their phones by their bed, having a virtual relationship with people, not having enough physical relationships with people. And again, we can put the blame to technology as mm -hmm. one of the main reasons why we're feeling this way as big groups of Western societies. Talk to me about whether you think there is a connection between mental health and the technology we're using today. Yeah, so I think it's important first, uh, if we are going to look for uh, correlational blame, and this is what what 100% of the studies to date have shown, maybe 99%, there's a few new ones that are coming out, but 99% of the studies that have been done on this topic to date have shown correlational 
uh, effects between increased use of technology and you know lower sense of well-being depending on how much kids use. And so we know not even one study, not even one has shown that two hours or less of age appropriate screen time has any deleterious effects. Okay, it's really only when it comes to five, six hours a day uh, of, of this extracurricular screen time, that's where we start to see, cor see correlation with, with uh, negative well-being in, in children. And of course, the question should be, well, you know, is five, six hours of any form of media indicative of something else going on? And that's why the, the, they haven't been able to prove any kind of causation, because the fact of the matter is that you can, the, the causation can go either way. Are people, uh, you know, becoming less, uh, le less happy, more depressed because of social media? Or is it that people who are struggling with mental health look to social media to feel better? I mean, we know people who are struggling with depression check email more, for example. Uh, but it's not that email is causing them to get depressed. It's that they are looking for escape. Again, back to what we talked about earlier about those internal triggers. If you feel discomfort more than the rest of the population, if you feel depressed, anxious, lonely, fatigued, you are more likely to seek relief. Now, what we don't hear about this question is the net effect. And I would argue that if we are going to place blame on technology, uh, as people jump to the conclusion of saying, okay, this is a causal relationship, which studies aren't finding, uh, but let's say you want to go there. I would argue that we should also look at what's happened on the plus side. So we know that, and first of all, by the way, just to talk about this mental health issue, we all, we know that among, uh, children among teenagers specifically that suicide rates have only risen in two countries, the U S and the UK. Every other OECD country, suicide rates are falling. Why? That doesn't make sense. In the Nordic countries, in Japan, it's falling precipitously. Why would that be? They've had social media and cell phones as long as we have. So that doesn't make sense. And even in the United States where suicide, teen suicide rates are high, they, they, by the way, they are not higher than they used to be. They actually used to be just as high in the 1980s. We had a historic low uh, around 2007. Um, but if you look at the, the, the data, it actually used to be even higher in the 1980s. Why? We don't really know. But even there where you see an uptick in teen suicide, it's only happening in rural areas. It's not happening in cities. That also doesn't make sense. If the cause is the technology, well, then urban centers actually have a higher penetration rate among children of having these, these phones and these, and these uh, social media services. Why is it not rising in urban areas? It's because there's some kind of cancer in the heartland, something's going on that we don't exactly understand. It's probably lack of access to mental health services. It's probably what's going on. That's probably part of the equation, but it doesn't make sense. The story doesn't seem to hold together that social media is the cause. And in fact, I would argue, if you look at the statistics at what kills kids, every metric of, of what gives a child a healthy childhood, all of these things are moving in the right direction, specifically around the time of the adoption of the cell phone. Truancy, record lows. Drug use, record lows. Pregnancy, record lows. Traffic accidents, record lows. Teen homicides, record lows. In America, we built prisons. This was supposed to be the generation of the super predator, right? That's what we used to call them, the super predator. And we built prisons across the country because we thought there wasn't going to be enough juvenile detention centers to house this generation of super predators. And you know what? They're empty. Mm. These correctional facilities, these juvenile detention centers are empty. Why? Well, maybe 
If you wanted to invent a device to keep kids off the streets, off the roads, and safe at home, maybe, just maybe, these video games aren't such a bad idea after all. So again, you know, the answer to every complex question is it depends. This question of is tech good, bad, right? It's, 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 a, it's a moot point. It's both. It's both. It depends on who is using, how much they are using, what they are doing with the technology, and most importantly, what would they be doing instead of using the technology? You know what kids used to do before this technology? Well, what we did in our childhood. We would vandalize stuff. We would hang out. We would drink. We would drink and drive. We could would do all these terrible things. That, guess point. what? Kids are doing way less of because they're at home on their computers. And so we're complaining about this. So they're safer. <laughs> they're safer, but they may not be as fulfilled. Right. So, you know, when you were, you know, standing on the you know, side of the streets or just playing playing Muppets, just, you know, out and about with your mates, at least you were with your mates. And I think, you know, we are, and I could be wrong, I don't know if I've got some universal stats here, but it feels like kids are more comfortable to spend more time at home, usually alone, with their devices, whether they're connected virtually or playing games or doing something um, you know, they want to do on their devices, as opposed to being with friends. And that connectedness yeah. is is perhaps an issue. And I know you speak about psychological nutrients, and I think this is a fantastic segue into it. Yeah, sure. Because no, it the absolutely one, is. The one last point I wanted to make, and I kind of key you off on this, is if I think about Instagram, for example, Instagram I use as a business, I see some value for it. Is It is a nice, quote-unquote, distraction for when I just want to be, uh, you know, entertained mindlessly for a few minutes. But um, I think the narrative people talk to on that is that it's it's it, um, exploded your sphere of um, uh, comparison. So before, you know, way before, you know, I could only compare myself to my local town uh, and the kids within there, the friends I knew. Now I have the opportunity to compare myself against pretty much everyone in the world, should I want to. And there is a a competence slash self-love issue I think occurring that I think is impacting mental health because it's almost impossible to be the best at anything when you've got other examples of people doing better, looking more attractive, doing more things, earning more money, getting more shit done, generally being in a high, you know, a better disposition. That I think is 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 a struggle. I know that I can see that in myself. That you know, catch me on the wrong day. If I if I flick through Instagram and I see a bunch of stuff of people living the high life, it can affect me. So, mm-hmm. what do you say about that? That's less about the algorithm. It's more about the fact we've opened up our 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 circle of comparison, and now I'm feeling inadequate from time to time. Yeah. So so I would argue the fact that you recognize this is evidence of how bad of a job these companies are actually doing. If this mind control was really true, if you were really powerless, you wouldn't be able to articulate exactly what you just said. And what I think we're seeing and what I encourage is for you to screw those companies and say, this doesn't feel good. I don't like this. This doesn't enhance my life. And either stop using it moderate your use or hack back. So for example, when I use Facebook, I've hacked back Facebook. I've used it in a way that Mark Zuckerberg never intended. I don't use it on my phone. I only use it on my desktop. 
I've turned off all the external triggers. I don't get any notifications, no emails from them. And when I go check Facebook, I installed a, a free Chrome extension. Anyone can use this called Facebook Newsfeed Eradicator because I don't want to see that, you know, ridiculous newsfeed that's filled with all kinds of junk that's built to entice me. And guess what? All those things I just did, Zuckerberg can't do a thing about it. And so that's what hacking back is all about. That's part of the of, of, of what we need to do to become indistractable is to use the technology in a way that serves us as opposed to us serving it. And I show you how you can do this with your YouTube feed and with news articles and all sorts of ways that you can hack back. None of these techniques are all that hard to do. We just need to do it. Now, when it comes to these psychological nutrients that you talked about earlier, and when it comes to kids, you know, I bring up the point of, of the, the positive aspects, because again, this stuff doesn't live in a vacuum. So we kind of have to be careful with what we wish for that. I would argue that, you know, one of the, 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 perhaps one of the best things that could happen to a generation is that, uh, for those very dangerous teen years, it would be not such a bad thing if they spent more time, uh, at home and less time doing the kind of things previous generations used to do outside. I mean, we've seen again, all these stats, drunk driving, murder rates, all these things are on the right trajectory because kids spend a lot less time time during these very dangerous teen years doing dangerous activities. But that doesn't mean I want kids to be online more. I think we need to look at why kids are overusing. And again, to frame this in perspective, not even one single study has shown that two hours or less of extracurricular age-appropriate screen time has any deleterious effects. So let's start with the facts. If your kid is using two hours or less of video games or social media, as long as it's age appropriate, right? As long as they're in the right age to use those products, we don't see any negative effects. It's only with the real excessive use. So why do we see this excessive use? What, what happens to the kids who are playing video games for five, six hours a day? What's going on there? What you will find is, is that they are deficient in what we call psychological nutrients. That, you know, we parents, we love to blame the proximal causes. We never like to look at the root causes because then the root causes mean we may have to do something about the problem. And so when we look at the root cause of why kids overuse, again, back to this hypothesis that we talked about earlier, that all human behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort. What is so uncomfortable in our kids' lives? Here's what it is. We know that when we don't get what we need offline in the real world, we look for it online. This is called the needs displacement hypothesis. It's a 30-year-old theory. It's been around a very long time. And it comes from the same people who uh, who, who did the research on self-determination theory. Self-determination theory is the most widely accepted theory of human flourishing and, and psychological well-being. Every psychologist on the face of the earth has heard of self-determination theory, very old established research that says that every human being, in order to flourish, needs three things, just like we have macronutrients for our body, right? We have carbohydrates, fat, and protein. When it comes to our psychological well-being, we need also these psychological vitamins of competency, autonomy, and relatedness. Now, when we look at kids' lives today, when we look at competency, you know, at, at least in, in this country, in the United States, one thing that coincides with the proliferation of use of cell phones is the rise in standardized testing, common core, uh, no child left behind, where now teachers are teaching towards these tests like they never have before, which means we have a subset of children who are constantly told in school every day, you are not competent, you are not measuring up. And so what do kids do when they don't feel competent in the real world? They look for a sense of competency in the virtual world. So when you play Minecraft, 
hey, you feel like a god. It makes you feel very competent. Now let's talk about autonomy. We know that this generation of kids is the most scheduled and regulated generation in history. That the stats show us that the average American child today has 10 times as many restrictions placed upon them as an average adult, mm -hmm. twice as many rules imposed on them as a convicted felon. That there are only two places in society where you can tell people where to go, what to think, what to eat, who to be friends with, what to wear, and that is school and prison. And so is it any surprise when kids come home, they want freedom. They want to feel yeah. like they can make their own choices. And if they can't do that in the real world, well, if I play Fortnite, now I feel like I, I do own this my, my decisions. I can be free for God's sakes. That's what they want. That's what we, we used to do as kids. We would go out. We would hang out. We would do something to just get out of our parents' hair in order to make our own choices. And so if they can't do it offline, they do it online. And finally, the, the third factor that's missing is relatedness, that – we have seen an utter collapse in the amount of time children have for perhaps the most psychologically nourishing thing they can do with their time, which is time for free play. Free play is when a child can interact with their peers without the direction of a coach, a parent, or a teacher, just letting kids play as kids. And we are at a 50-year low in the amount of time that children have for free play. And so you know, why does this happen? One, the media has scared us to death and the average parent today doesn't wanna let their kid outdoors because they're afraid somebody's going to abduct them, which is ridiculous. This is the safest time in history to be a child in the Western world. And two, if a, a, a parent doesn't, does have means, if they do have the money, well, what do we do with our kids? We schedule them to the gills. We make them go to football practice and then we, they make a, a swimming practice and then Mandarin lessons and then test prep. And so kids have no time to play. And so where do they go to socialize? Where do they go for this sense of relatedness? Well, they go to TikTok, they go to Instagram, they go to Snapchat, they go to Fortnite, where what these products offer them is a way to interact with their peers. That's the real source of the problem. And if we just keep you know, putting Band-Aids on these, these gushing wounds, we will never fix the real source of the problem. Sounds like you're you're talking about accountability from the parents' perspective, right? This isn't about the blame game of blaming technology and uh, you know the the social norms or social expectations. As a parent, you have the free will, you have the choice um, to increase your child's autonomy, make more of their own choices. You have the opportunity to build up their competence or their self worth, their self belief by encouraging words and perhaps not exposing them to the environments where they are always judged by others, including yourself. And you can go out of your way to either interact and engage and free play with your kids or ensure that they have opportunities to do so with others. And I take that personally. I'm, I'm a father of two beautiful children. And mm -hmm. um, I, I think we, we suffer to some degree with restricting all of these three things. Not mm -hmm. incredibly so, but definitely there are elements we could improve. Yeah. And, and look, you know, at the end of the day, we pay for these cell phones, right? <laughs> we pay for the data plans. So we really can't blame technology. We are the enablers of anything, right? And so I think we need to come to grips with, with two things. One, we do have more power and control than we think. And two, you know, if we want to set a good example, uh, 
we, we have to become indistractable ourselves, that children are hypocrisy detection devices. They can sniff out hypocrites from a mile away. So we can't tell our kids, stop playing Fortnite while we're checking Facebook yeah. or checking email. Yeah. We can't do that. We have to become indistractable ourselves. Now, the good news is that we can follow the exact same four steps. And I encourage parents to be vulnerable. You know, many parents don't want to tell their kids that they're struggling with something. And I think that's a missed opportunity. It's okay to tell your kid, you know what? These tech designers, they're some pretty smart people. And they have designed these video, video games, these phones to be really engaging. And I struggle with this as well. Let's figure out ways to work together to make sure that we, we don't become distracted. So what does that look like? Well, starting with understanding the internal triggers, which we talked about, we can schedule time together, right? We can teach our kids how to make their own schedules, including time for these technologies. So part of the reason that kids become so obsessed with these technologies is that parents restrict them too much. And then the child obsesses about, when can I sneak it in? When can I do it? When can I do it? As opposed to saying, you know what? If you want 45 minutes to play video games every night, no problem. Let's put it on the calendar. Every night after dinner, everybody gets to enjoy 45 minutes of video games. Do it, enjoy it without guilt. There is zero evidence that this is bad for your kids, okay? If, as long as it's age appropriate, zero deleterious effects. And, and respect their time. You know, a lot of parents, they constantly interrupt their kids. They become the distraction. They stop them get their kids from enjoying something they want to do. Imagine if you're watching a wonderful soccer match, a football match, and your kid, you know, is in front of the television. That's annoying. And the same thing happens when we parents make our kids stop playing Fortnite because we don't like it. <laughs> Let them be right? indistractable in exactly. their pursuit of the things they want to do for the time that they've allocated for it. I think that's amazing. That's brilliant. That's right. And, and then they don't have to obsess about it all day because they know, oh, every night after dinner we get to play. So they're not thinking about it all day. And give them the control. So when my daughter was five years old, we asked her, how much time do you want? Uh, how much screen time do you want? And we explained that it's not that the technology is evil. It's not addicting you. It's not that you know, we, we didn't want to scare her because, look, after all, you know, her job in the future, all our kids' jobs is going to depend on being te tech literate. We don't want to raise a generation of Luddites. So we told her, look, the cost of too much screen time is an opportunity cost, that it's the opportunity to not play with your friends. It's the opportunity that you've forgone to play with us, to read a book, to do your homework, to do anything else. So in everything that you need to do in your day, how much time do you think is the right amount of time for you to have on the screen? And she said 45 minutes. She, she thought she was getting one over on me. And she said, she said, actually, not 45 minutes, she said two episodes. Well, two episodes on Netflix is about 45 minutes, which I have no problem with. But I gave her the agency, I gave her the control. I said, okay, fine, 45 minutes it is, but how will you moderate your own use of these products, right? How will you moderate your screen time? Well, she thought for a minute and she, she suggested, look, we have this microwave that was below the countertop so she could reach it. And she could walk up to the microwave and type in 45 minutes and there was a little timer that would beep when her 45 minutes are up. Now she's 11 years old. She doesn't use the microwave anymore. Now she uses these tools that are actually built into the devices. She uses Apple screen time. She uses Amazon Alexa. She says, Alexa, set the timer for 45 minutes. And now the beauty is I'm not the bad guy. It's not daddy who has to tell her to stop using the device. She learned how to moderate her own behavior with these tools. Because remember, we're not raising kids. We're raising future adults. So if all we do is inflict rules on kids, we're, we're, we're generating cheaters. We are raising liars because what are they gonna do when you're not watching? 
they're going to cheat <laughs> when they're at a friend's house, when they leave for university, they're going to do whatever the hell they want. So start now teaching them how to regulate their behavior, because if there's the one skill that your child will most definitely need, we don't know if your kid's going to need to know how to speak a foreign language, right? In a few years, we're probably all going to have babble fishes in our ears that are going to translate any language or, you know, who knows what, 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 what they'll need to learn uh, for the future. One thing I guarantee you, your child will need is the ability to focus, the ability to become indistractable. That is a life skill we can't afford not to teach our kids. Love that, love that. And I also think, you know, the combination of understanding how to use but not be used by technology, because I think that's what you're saying, the, mm -hmm. the skill of understanding what to eat, you know, to live healthy, be, be well, and sure. understanding the importance and utility of exercise. I mean, if you could you could impart that knowledge in a way that helps them feel that they're owning that knowledge and they're autonomous in their decisions. They can see the cause and effect of both the good and bad behaviors in those three areas. I think we'd, we'd, um, you know, we'd raise healthier kids and more capable, as you say, less distracted kids. I think that is, it's brilliant. Look, I know we're coming close on our time. There's, um, two things I just wanted to cover off. Uh, hopefully we won't, won't take too much more. Um, first is, this idea of social antibodies. And I heard you speak about this and I heard you write about this. And I thought, actually, this is a really interesting way of describing it. And the tee up here is, this is about um, enabling the social, your social circle to either call bullshit on you or to mm -hmm. help control your behaviors. At least that's what I took from it. Maybe you can just elaborate a little bit more, please. Yeah, yeah. So this idea of social antibodies is when we as a society uh, learn that there are certain things that harm us, we can inoculate ourselves, we can inoculate society from these the harmful effects of certain behaviors by changing our norms, changing our manners, our mores. And, and I argue that, you know, this needs to happen with technology, clearly. I think, you know, it's, it, we need to change our, the way we use technology so that it's, we don't use it in antisocial ways. And I would argue that we've been here before with a much more destructive and addictive technology, which is the cigarette. So I remember uh, in the early 80s, I remember you know, neither of my parents smoked. And yet in our living room, we had ashtrays because back then in the early 80s, and this is going to sound ridiculous to anyone who you know was born after 1990 or so, that back then people would just come into your home mm -hmm. and assume they could smoke in your living room. That's what people just did. And now that's ridiculous. Can you imagine if someone did that in your living room? That would be absolutely crazy. How rude would that be? Well, what changed? What happened? You know, it wasn't legislation. There's never been a law that says you can't smoke in someone's living room. That's, that's never been the case. There's never been such legislation. What changed was that we changed the norms, the manners around this behavior. I remember when my mom first told someone, hey, we are non-smokers. If you want to smoke, please smoke outside. She lost friends over that. That was, a, that was considered a very you know, unusual thing to do to ask someone to go outside to smoke. Today, we wouldn't imagine someone smoking in our home. Now everybody just knows you can't smoke in someone's living room. And so I think we see a similar transformation now. This is a big reason why I wrote this book. I want people to proudly declare to themselves and to other people that I am indistractable. This is part of my identity. This is how I live my life. I don't want to succumb to every ping and ding. I don't want to answer every potential distraction, uh, you know, every email, every 30 seconds. I want to control my attention. I want to control my life. That's why I am indistractable. 
one part of the book which I thought was brilliant. You spoke about uh, people around the dinner table or, or at a restaurant, and I've done this. My friends do this. I see people all around the restaurants as I'm eating my food do this. You know, there could be an engaging conversation. It, it might not even be boring. It might be really entertaining and engaging. But yet still, halfway through the conversation, someone's got their phone out and just flicking through with no intent. Not because there's a, an important email and a sales order about to come in. They're just, oh, I'm just going to pick up my phone and just look at this notification. It's ridiculous. It pisses me off when yeah. people do it to me, but I do it to others. And I do it even unknowingly. Um, you, you spoke about snubbing people and how it will hopefully become a social norm for people to call people out when right. they do that in their company. And you had right. a specific phrase. <laughs> the question, do you remember the question that you- Absolutely, you absolutely. So we see this all the time, right? What happens when you go out with friends and they haven't gotten the message, right? They haven't learned that this is a rude behavior. And I think it's it's changing rapidly. More and more people know that, you know, if you sit down to a, a lunch or a dinner or, you know, even a business meeting, it's rude to take out your device, right? <laughs> like if we're going to have a meeting, be present both in body and mind. We're, we're, we're starting to learn this, but some people haven't gotten the message. So what do you do? You, you, you can't tell somebody, hey, put away your phone. Uh, you're, you're probably gonna lose that friend. And you, you honestly don't know what's on the other side of that screen. So it could be an emergency, it could be some kind of crisis. So we can't just assume uh, that it's nothing important. So there's one question we can ask that can give our friend the opportunity to do the right thing. And that question is, hey, I see you're on your phone, is everything okay? And you have to ask it sincerely. Because when we say, hey, is everything okay? You're allowing them the opportunity to say, oh, you know what, I'm so sorry, uh, there's something going on, my kid's school just called, uh, this just happened, let me go take care of it. And then the, hopefully they'll leave the table and figure it out. Or nine times out of 10, they'll say, oh, I'm sorry, and they'll put their phone away. And so that's a very simple way to spread this social antibody, kind of like my mom used to do when she asked people to please smoke outside. I love that. I love that. Um, I think it's going to take a bit of practice, though, to get that get that tone and sincerity right, um, because you're just going to come across either judgmental or it's going to be obvious what you're trying to do. Um, but I, I like that. The one, not assuming that you know they're just mindlessly distracted, they may have an issue. And two, how can you elegantly remind them that perhaps they could be more present? That's brilliant. Right. I'm going to definitely right. try and use it myself. And, and one step at a time. Look, I mean, the, the whole point of, of this book, you don't have to do everything all at once. We actually didn't get to some of the other techniques. Uh, there's many, many, many techniques in the book. You don't have to do everything all at once. As long as you use these four parts in concert and take small steps, right? As long as you have this toolkit that I describe in the book on how to deal with internal triggers, as long as you start planning your day in some small ways, maybe even one day a week, you start trying this time box calendar, hacking back your devices, the third step step? You know, do you turn off notifications? That's something anyone can do. And then using these pre-commitments, using these packs to prevent distraction. There's so many small ways that we can become indistractable. And, and you can proudly call yourself indistractable right now, right? This can become part of your identity today that can help serve you and help serve others as well to start spreading these social antibodies. This is how we are going to change society. I totally agree, Nair. And I, I highly recommend people get your book. It's got so many great pearls of wisdom and tips like one of the things i just loved was this idea of the concentration crown and <laughs> let's not go into it now people are gonna have to read the book to understand what that is but i thought that was fantastic as well as you talking about willpower being an, an unlimited resource and if people think that way they usually get more stuff done but there's one closing question in relate in relation to one of the things you put in the book and it, the reason i asked this name is i see this 
this skill or, or this um, attribute in my personality to both be a blessing and a curse. Mm. Uh, if you haven't already noticed, I'm quite curious. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm incredibly curious around pretty much anything and everything I do. There's always one more question, and that one more question can sometimes get me in trouble. Now, if I reflect on this week, I'm very close to releasing a product that I've been working for about a year and a half to get out. I, I feel your pain writing a five-year book. It's, uh, mm. it's, uh, <laughs> I can't wait for this thing to get done. Um, and there's some really lumpy things I need to go do. Uh, so, and a lot of things I need to do I've never done before, certain technology things and certain you know PR things I've never done before. And I find myself, my curiosity enables me to stay present and dig in to problems so I can find solutions. But curiosity is also my problem because when I had time boxed myself to only spend 10, 20, 30 minutes researching this thing, which I would then drop and then carry on with the other activities I had for the day, including working out and doing this and, you know, spending time with my family, I would allow myself to go, this is productive research. This thing needs to get done and it needs to get done soon. And you're learning, Steve, and I love learning. So then that curiosity takes over the day. And then I'm going to bed at two o'clock in the morning doing and thinking and learning something I've never done before. So it's fresh, it's new, it's it's inefficient because it's brand new and I'm trying to work it out. So talk to me about curiosity because you talk about boredom being a major driver for distraction mm-hmm. and how a cure to boredom is curiosity. If right. you can be curious in the work you do, even if it's hard, you can, you can, you can re- fully invest. And I, I see that, I know that, I feel that. But that curiosity can also draw you into areas that you hadn't planned to get into, or at least not at the depth or the time you'd anticipated spending. Long question, right. but talk no, no, to me great. about how curiosity, how you manage that. Yeah, it's 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 fantastic. So here's here's what we do. So one, when we make a time box calendar, it's not set in stone. So we want to approach every week of our lives as an experiment. So we don't keep a time box calendar in order to be, you know, a, 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 a disciplinarian. And if we don't do exactly what we say week after week, then we beat ourselves up. No, the idea is to look back at that week and say, oh, you know what? I really would have liked a lot more time to work on this particular area. Well, what do we do? The next week we make more time for it. And it, I say a week, but by the way, you can change it in any cadence you want. You know, some people, their day is so unpredictable that they don't know what they're going to be doing tomorrow until that morning. And so that's fine. You can you can decide your calendar on that day. But once you decide on your calendar, stick with it. So if you say, wow, this was so fascinating, I can't get back to work on, on this thing and I only budgeted an hour, well, tomorrow or next week, you can always adjust that calendar accordingly. So problem solved in that domain. I would say the, uh, the other thing here is that because you are a curious person, because you know how to tap into that trait in, in one area of your life, I think you have a massive advantage and a, a power that you can utilize in other areas of your life. So we're kind of coming full circle to where we started. And I remember you told me that there were certain tasks in the morning that you would be distracted from and you would check the analytics on your podcast, et cetera, because you didn't really want to do that hard thing in the morning. Well, part of the solution to that is to utilize that, that curiosity to learn how to what's called play anything. That we, by, by this is called reimagining the task. So this technique of reimagining the task says, you know, many people, they, they subscribe to this Mary Poppins spoonful of sugar idea that if I give myself a reward 
at the end, then I can do this thing I really don't want to do. And it turns out that studies find that is actually not very effective. You end up being a lot less creative. It becomes a, a drudgery, a task that's full of drudgery, not very enjoyable. Instead, what we find is that if you can utilize that curiosity, not necessarily to enjoy the task, enjoyment is too high of a bar. The, the, the bar should be, can I utilize my curiosity to focus more intently on the task so that it can occupy my attention long enough to get through it? So what does this look like? So uh, I, I, I document the, the case of Dr. Ian Bogost, who, who has this philosophy, and he talks about how he hates cutting his grass. He hates mowing his lawn. And it was something that week after week he just would, would hate doing. And so what did he do? He, he focused more intently on the task. He did research into all the different kinds of grass. He, he found all the different growing conditions and the fertilizer. He got more into the task, driven by his curiosity. And then the second thing he did was he added variability. Okay, so he would time himself to see how quickly he could mow the lawn. And then he would find ways to see what's the most efficient pattern for mowing the lawn. And by doing those two things, looking at it with curiosity and then adding variability, this is how we play anything. Without the bar of saying, oh, this has to be fun, that's too high of a bar. Play does not have to be fun. It just has to occupy our attention. And so that's one thing that you can do for these tasks that you find yourself avoiding every morning, that you find that you, you are, would rather get distracted by looking up your numbers or doing something else that's not what you really wanted to do. If you learn how to play that task, even the difficult stuff, you can make it a lot less painful, minimize those internal triggers, master those internal triggers in order to do what you really said you're going to do. And how would you, how would you manage or curtail someone who is just so curious, right? And, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a very, very specific example. It's brief. So I'm, I'm trying to put together some kind of a calculating type service on our website so people can get an assessment of how they're showing up in life. And it's fairly complicated mm -hmm. and requires a lot of brain power and tools I've never used before. And I'd scheduled it in for this week and I started it at the time and place that I'd anticipated. And I knew I was going to get somewhat down a rabbit hole, but I allowed myself a few hours to just start the ball rolling. It wasn't a few hours. It started at two o'clock in the afternoon. It finished at 2 a.m. in the morning. I woke <laughs> up to this morning, tired, fatigued, coffee in hand. Right, I'm going to, you know, read a bit of my book and I'm going to go do my workout, which I do religiously every morning. But I'd got the bug. My brain had gone to bed thinking about this. I'd woken up still thinking about it. I was just going to check one other thing. Just one other question came to my mind. And I spent all day doing it again. I almost, yeah. almost had to call you up and say, I just haven't got time. <laughs> <laughs> it was that, that, I got that much into it. Now, this is yeah. something productive for my business, something I need to do. I'm inefficient because I've never done it before. And I'm learning loads of new stuff. But it wasn't on the calendar. It wasn't on the schedule. And it's affecting my time with my kids, how much sleep I get. I didn't work out today, which is like a cardinal sin for me. Mm. How do we manage curiosity when it when you know it gets the better of you, even if it's a productive thing that you're curious about? Yeah, I, I think it's it's about asking yourself what your values are. Uh, that's where this all starts. So when it comes to these time box calendars, how do we know how to fill up our days? What do we decide what goes in our calendar? Well, we have to look at our values and turn our values into time. 
So when we make our time box calendar, if part of your values are, you know what, that this is really important to me. I, I really value this, this the, the enjoyment I'm, I'm getting out of this. I really value what this could do for my business. Great, I say schedule time for it. Do it all day if, that, if it's beneficial to you. Unless you have trade-offs, right? So if you say, you know what, one of my values is to be an available father. One of my values is to, uh, is to take care of my body. Well, if you're skipping out on those things, then you're really not living up to your values. You haven't turned your values into time. And so this, this is part of being a grown-up, right? Uh, children, they just, they're impulsive. They do whatever they want when they want. And, and I would argue that doesn't serve us as adults because you know many times we get so into something for one reason or another, what we oftentimes see in workaholics is they will say, they will rationalize that, you know, I just love this and this is what I'm all about and this is my identity and it's so interesting, blah, blah, blah. But oftentimes there's something they are escaping from, right? They're running away. So as long as that's not the reason we're doing this, as long as it's something that we plan in advance, work can be very, very healthy. And especially if it's work we enjoy. But I would argue that enjoyment's still gonna be there, right? If you did, if you worked from 2 p.m. to 2 a.m., so 12 hours, if you did that in one big shift versus if you did that over a few days, I would argue if this if this curiosity is sincere, it'll still be there, right? It'll still be there if you work it's on this two momentum, hours a day, man. three hours a day. It's momentum, What's that? right? I'm, I'm in I'm in the middle of things. Why would I stop the ball rolling, right? And and look, it's irrational. It's irrational because I'm 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 not productive at one a.m. in the morning. I know I'm not, but the ball's rolling. I'm in it. I'm a complete finisher, and I want to get it done. It's like oh, just a little bit more, just a little bit more, and then I can go to bed happy. And look, I'm, I'm a know, complex okay, so individual. Interesting. <laughs> Originally, oh, this is so interesting. Originally, you said it was about the the joy of curiosity, and you were kind of attributing doing something too much because it was the joy of curiosity. I think we're getting to the root cause here. The root cause isn't the pleasure of curiosity. It's the escape from the discomfort of having something not done. Yeah, probably. So now we're back to the internal trigger of how can I deal with that discomfort in a healthier manner? Because you and I both agree not working out is not what you wanted to do. Not being with your family is not what you wanted to do. Putting the, the responsibility on your partner to take care of the family because you're working till 2 a.m. is not what you want to do. That's not how you're living up to your values. And the reason you're doing this thing you didn't want to do is not actually because of the pleasure of curiosity. What's really going on is that you're trying to escape from the discomfort of, oh, this isn't done yet. It's not done yet. It's not done yet. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I would encourage you to explore of whether being a slave to that sensation is really serving you. Love it. I love it. I make almost all our conversations some kind of <laughs> Steve on the couch type thing. But you know what? Hopefully for the guys listening, uh, there's some relatability throughout this discussion. I found it absolutely fascinating. And it's definitely got me thinking about things a little bit differently. How I look after my kids, how I look after myself, how I evaluate whether I'm being productive or not, and how I'm choosing my time. So I appreciate you so much, Nair. This has been fantastic. Tell people where to get a book, you know, where to find you on social media, your website, all that kind of stuff. Sure thing. And thank you. I appreciate you letting me explore into your life. And, and I, I really think this is kind of a breakthrough here because it's, you know, every time we, I think it's such an important point. I think lots of people feel this. 
is that we rationalize the, the, the pleasure when it's really about some kind of discomfort. But once we identify the discomfort, we can really do something about it. So thank you mm -hmm. so much for being the guinea pig here. I appreciate it, you being vulnerable and, and, and sharing with all of us. Um, so in terms of, of where you can find more information about me, you can go to my website. It's near and far, near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. So that's N-I-R-N-F-A-R.com. And if you want specific information about the book, it's Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. You can go to indistractable.com. There's an 80-page complimentary workbook there that you can get totally free. Uh, but if you do end up buying the book, make sure that you send me your order number also at indistractable.com because there's a complimentary video that you can get that's a great compliment to the book that you want to make sure you can see as well. And, that, and all that's available at indistractable.com. Awesome. Are you writing a third book? Uh, at some point, I'm hoping yeah. in every five years. That's kind of my cadence. So we'll <laughs> see about the next one. <laughs> I'm still I'm still looking at what kind of problems I need to solve that someone else hasn't. <laughs> Fantastic. Good stuff. Well, Nir, thank you so much for today. Um, we're going to say goodbye, uh, but hopefully it's not forever. Uh, I'd like to keep in touch with brilliant minds, and I think you are absolutely one of those. Thank you for today. It's definitely helped me. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Cool. Wow. What an episode. What an episode. It was jam-packed full of goodness. And I hope that there's a lot of takeaways here for you. Now, please remember that the Be Your Best Self-Optimization program is imminently available. And you can go check that out by going to adaptnation.io and on the homepage, there will be a notify button. Press that and you will get notified as soon as it drops. And you're going to want to see this. This is a game changing product. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>